but I couldn't get out of bed to find, you know, scissors or a, a pencil, something to stick into my heart. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. The Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Welcome back to our wonderful discussion with former Navy Corpsman Mark Foreman. And in the past two episodes, Mark has taken us through this extraordinary experience of an ambush uh, happened on a mountaintop in the jungles of Vietnam, where in the first 10 minutes on the very first day of the battle, 80% of his company was either killed or wounded. Mark lay on the battlefield wounded with his hip uh, blown off for the following five days before he was uh, medevaced by helicopter to a hospital, first to Japan and then on to uh, Bethesda Naval Hospital. And... It talks about not just the event and the pain of uh, the experience he had when he was in the hospital in Japan and coming to realize that his numbing of his emotions had been so extraordinary and so powerful that he had forgotten about his family and the whole concept in, in connection to the feeling of, of love. And that returned to him. And then he went on to Bethesda and spent months in a body cast before being released and sent back home to his family where he had to recover and go through uh, therapy, physical therapy, five days a week for, for uh, quite a while until he recovered from that and went on to spend a very, very intense 10 years of carving stone because he had this need to express himself in some way. And the best way that he could find that made him the happiest was through carving limestone. He did that for 10 years and then realized it was time to take this love of his uh, for art onto a different level, which was to go back to college, get his degree in teaching, and teach art to grade schoolers, which he did for uh, the rest of his professional career. But along the way, he came into something that the doctor originally told him on his very first surgery after being medevaced out of the jungle, and that was to be careful of this infection caused osteomyelitis, returning to his bones where he had been wounded in Vietnam. So quite a story along the way, but now he is back, and it's about 30 years later. Mark can verify that for us. The osteomyelitis is returning, and Mark has mentioned in the past episode, he was getting tired and painful in his, in his hip, finding himself leaning on his desk at work. And we're going to bring Mark back in now, and Mark, uh, continue our story, and we're going to share this extraordinary story of uh, your operation for osteomyelitis. Welcome back, Mark. Thanks, Mike. Um, yeah, this this is uh, the time period I'm going to talk about now is from 1968 when I was wounded until 1990. 
when the bacteria, when I laid on the mountain for those five days, um, I got a horrible bacterial infection called osteomyelitis. And that became really the most threatening um, part of my wound. It, it, osteomyelitis kills people because uh, the bacteria is, is, they know very little about it. All they know to do is to pump me full of antibiotics, which they did for five months out at Bethesda Naval Hospital while I was still in a body cast. And they they got they got the osteo to a point where they they called it it's in a dormant phase, and that means it's sleeping. Um, and they warned me that in about twenty years I'm probably going to be infected with it again, or that the bacteria will have grown to the point where it's it's life threatening and that I'll need to get into um, a hospital very quickly when I uh, believe that I have it. So I, I started teaching. I graduated and, and started teaching in 1985. And it was in 1990 that the pain in my hip started to get really, really bad, where I could barely work. I could, you know, I, when I pull into the parking lot, it took me a long time to get from my car to the building, to the school, and then to spend the whole day teaching with my hip in a whole lot of pain. Well, I, I finally, um, I, I started doing research where, where is the best orthopedic uh, hospital in the world? And, and I came to the conclusion that it was in Rochester, Minnesota. So I, I um, contacted um, orthopedic surgeons in Minneapolis or in um, Rochester, told them what my symptoms were, and they said, get in here right now. So I, uh, I flew to Minneapolis, and then a friend drove me down to Rochester. And um, they gave me three full days of tests and the last day of, of the testing, they finally took a biopsy. They stuck a needle in, right into my wound. And I was really frightened. I, was, I, I didn't want them sticking a needle into my wound. But I went ahead and let them do it. And it actually didn't hurt at all. <laughs> um, trouble is, when they stuck the needle into my wound, my body had created a, an, a membrane around the infection to keep it from getting out into the rest of my body. And when they stuck the needle in there, it popped the membrane. And all the pus, which I didn't know at the time, there was pus coming out of the, that membrane into my body. And I drove home that day after that test, I drove home. And by the time I got home, I had a fever of 102. And I just, I, I wanted to believe that, I still didn't know that, that it was because this, the membrane had been broken. Um, That's why I had the fever. But about two days later, after I'd been home, and the fever wasn't getting any better, um, that's when I, I um, 
started, uh, well, then I contacted Rochester, the orthopedic surgeons at Rochester, Minnesota. Okay, so now I'm laying in a hospital bed in Rochester, Minnesota at um, St. Mary's Hospital in a whole lot of pain. And they are preparing me for surgery. And the surgery is going to entail making um, an incision from the top on the outside of my leg, from the top of my pelvis down to my knee. And the surgery was they pulled the femur bone out of my leg. Um, it was still attached at the knee, but it was pulled out of my leg. And they, they bloodied up my bone, my femur, uh, and then poured um, antibiotics all over the bone. They put the bone back into my leg and wrapped my leg real tight with ACE wrap. And of course, when I woke up from the surgery, I was in a, a whole lot of pain. And I started, they started giving me morphine. And initially it started to work that it, that it reduced the pain. But then they had to take the bone out of my leg again for a second time, bloody up the bone, cover the whole bone with, with uh, antibiotics, put it back in my leg for the second time, and then wrapped it real tight. And then when I woke up from the surgery and started taking morphine, I had an allergic reaction to the morphine. And the reaction was that every sense, my vision, touch, hearing, um, all of my senses felt like they were in a vat of acid. I couldn't open my eyes because light would burn my eyes. The, the bed sheets felt like I was laying in a bed of acid. Um, any noises, it was just horrible, absolutely horrible. And I wanted to kill myself. And here I was again, for it was the second time that I wanted to kill myself. First time was when I was in Japan and now this time. Um, but I couldn't get out of bed to find, you know, scissors or a, a pencil, something to stick into my heart. So I called, I, I called the nurse with the call cord and um, told her, you know, what I was, what I was going through. And she said that she would send someone in. And this was about midnight that a guy in a lab coat came in with his, um, what do you call it, uh, clipboard with 200 questions to ask me. And, you know, here I was in this, Im immersed in this unbelievable pain. And he wanted me to answer his questions, which I, I did. And it took until like three o'clock in the morning before he was done asking me all these questions. Then at five in the morning, it was the head of the, the mental health department, a woman who came to my bedside and I could tell that she was human. You know, the lab guy wasn't human. He was just a lab rat asking me a bunch of questions. 
she came at, came to my bedside at about five in the morning and explained to me that she believed that I was having a reaction to what I had gone through initially back in, in Da Nang and in Japan. And that for some, she didn't believe it was an allergy to morphine. It was something going on in my mind that was trying to, I don't know what it was trying to do, but anyway, I, 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 I believed her and, and yet, and there was nothing they could do. And I had one more surgery to go through. So in a, a couple more days, they came and got me, took me to surgery, opened up my leg again and pulled the bone out, bloodied it up, poured the antibiotics all over it. And then they sewed me up and took me to my bed. When I woke up, I can't, I can't begin to describe the pain and I couldn't have any more morphine. So I had to deal with this kind of pain somehow. And the only thing that was available to me was what I had learned back in the early seventies about meditation and knowing that the more you can relax when you're in pain, if you can find a way to relax, it will reduce the amount of pain. So I started, I was laying in the bed by myself and I started doing um, these techniques uh, around meditation. First, you start with being conscious of your breathing and then your, my mind would start going wherever it needed to go. And I remember it was like these, um, it was a slide projector of these faces of people that I'd never seen before that were, you know, coming into my vision. And, um, and my eyes were closed at the time uh, that I was seeing these, these people that I didn't know. And, and then the room filled with an energy. Um, that's all that, the only thing I can describe it. It was an energy that I had never felt before. The whole room was buzzing with this energy. And, the, and this energy wasn't just, it was mo moving through the room real slowly. And I sensed that there was something on the left-hand side of my bed I opened my eyes and my peripheral vision saw something moving on the left-hand side of my bed. And I looked over at it and it was a Native American Indian that was as clear to me as you are right now. Um, it, was, um, it was like a Native American who lived in the 1700s. He was had um, deer skin clothing, really old and used. Yeah, um, he had a um, bear claw necklace uh, around his, his neck. 
he had eagle a couple of eagle feathers um, coming down out of his hair. And he was moving very, very slowly alongside my bed. And then he got about maybe three or four feet out um, around my bed. And then another Native American came in. They were just floating, floating, not making, they weren't talking to me. They were just coming into the room. And then there was a third one. And they were making, they were making their way around my bed. And then the fourth one, it wasn't clear. It was real fuzzy, but it was, it was another Native American, but it was just really fuzzy. And then the fifth thing that came out of, of the wall behind me was, it was like a sun, a pulsating sun. Just a beautiful, beautiful, it, it wasn't hard to look at. It wasn't so bright, but it was a real deep orange red like sun pulsating. They, they took their place around my bed, all around my bed, and not a word was spoken. They didn't need to speak because I knew they were there to help get me through this. And the love that filled the room was indescribable. Um, where they came from, it, it didn't really matter they were there and they were as real as any type of reality. And so they stayed with me around my bed for the rest of the day. And they slowly just disappeared. And when they disappeared, the pain was still there, but it was irrelevant to the love that I felt for being alive, for the beauty around me. The, the love was just so unbelievably beautiful. Um, but like I say, the pain was still there. That reality was still there. But this other reality that the Native Americans brought to, to me um, was so much more powerful than the pain that that's all that really mattered. And I remember... Um, okay, they, they disappeared right around nightfall and I fell asleep. When I woke up in the morning, uh, the cleaning lady came into my room and I remember how I loved her so much. Um, I just not, you know, it was, it was just pure love. And we got into a really fun conversation and, um, then she left, and then shortly after that, um, they came into my room with a gurney to take me down to physical therapy, to start physical therapy right away. Okay, so they rolled me to the elevator and took me into the basement to the physical therapy department, and there were about 20 or 30 other people in wheelchairs and gurneys waiting to be seen by physical therapists. They parked my gurney next to a nine-year-old girl who was sitting in a really tall wheelchair. Um, she was dying of cancer. And I was, you know, laying next to her. And we got into the most beautiful conversation 
we were just having a really nice time sharing our lives together. Um, and, you know, as far as knowing that she was, she had terminal cancer. Oh, oh and her uncle, she was, she was dressed in a tie-dye long underwear. She looked like an orchid. Um, you know, she was, it was really, uh, I thought it was such a beautiful gesture on her uncle's part to give her this tie-dyed, um, you know, long underwear. And uh, so we just, we just had a, a wonderful time together. And once again, the pain was still there, but it was irrelevant because the love was just so beautiful. And uh, so they came and took me back up to my room and I just did more meditation uh, up in my room. And then for the next week, they would come every morning with the gurney, take me down into the basement for physical therapy and sat me next to this young girl um, and every day we just had this beautiful conversation. Um, so a week later, it was time, oh, they put me in a body cast. And um, I, a good friend of my wife's and, and mine had a, a van uh, that I would be able to fit in. And so they put me in the van and uh, we sang, we loved to sing. And we sang all the way back to Milwaukee for five hours. We just sang. And uh, again, I was, I was filled with this love. I just, I don't know how to describe it other than it was just pure love and, and appreciation for being alive. And, and um, so I just wanted to share this amazing experience. And when I got home, I, they gave me a whole lot of antibiotics uh, that I had to inject in myself every day. There was a, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, anyway, it was, it was, there was a needle that was put under my clavicle into an artery and, and I would um, pump a whole lot of antibiotics into that every day. And, um, it, I was in that body cast for, I think it was three or four months, and they took me out of it. And uh, I, I was able to get around with crutches uh, with my body cast. And I, uh, well, I was off work for a whole year. But um, after a few months of being at home, injecting myself with all these antibiotics i wanted to do something to try and help society and i had heard about this organization called jobs with peace and i called them and told them i was interested in helping in any way i could and uh so i would i ended up going there every day on my crutches uh, while I was healing enough, then after after a year of uh, volunteering for um, Jobs with Peace, I started teaching again. And I ended up teaching for 20 years. Wow. <clears throat> we are visiting 
I had to clear my throat, which we're not supposed to do on a microphone, but this is such, a, again, an extraordinary part of your voyage through the military, uh, Mark. We're speaking with former Navy Corpsman Mark Foreman. So we have gone now from extraordinary wound blowing off your hip on the mountaintop in Vietnam, the nights of the screaming and yelling of wounded uh, Marines and dying Marines and the 80% loss of of your company to either wounds or to death on the mountain, the, uh, the hoping that you would be killed on the mountain because the pain was so severe that you were hoping the North Vietnamese would actually find a bullet that would finish you off. Uh, yep. th- then to Japan, where the pain was so extraordinary, the physical pain was so extraordinary that you were looking for something to stab into your heart or choke yourself with the, the cord for the nurse call uh, button. And then you've come home, and 30 years later, this is returned again uh, to with the osteomyelitis. And I can't imagine, and I, I hope our audience realizes when you say that they exposed your your femur 360 degrees from your knee up to your groin, that hip bone was completely exposed all the way around. And on the final, the third operation, without any painkillers after, you had to have that bone exposed. And when you say exposed it to bleeding, I think you meant it had to be roughed up like sandpaper, really, to get it bleeding right. again. And then right. uh, poured with uh, alcohol, and then be just ha- have the flesh stitched up or and mus- muscle stitched up around your your thigh bone, <clears throat> your femur, excuse me, uh, and, and no, again for the third time, this desire to find something to end your life because the physical pain is so extraordinary and beyond what you're capable of of handling. If you right. didn't find this other dimension to escape to, which I have never well, heard that's from the way to describe it. it, it was another dimension, yeah. but it was as real as this dimension. Yeah, this this uh, <clears throat> this new dimension where you could escape from the pain, which was helpful. But in every one of these instances, you went on to find a new way to embrace life to find something positive to continue on to find love. So this love has uh, come to be a very powerful thing for you. And so in all of these experiences, you continue to have uh, this desire to make the world a better place. So with having shared these incredible experiences with us, Mark, could you share now as kind of um, conclusion to to this wonderful story, what you think is been powerful in helping you do to the, do this to get through these things. I know you're very very good about speaking about taking the responsibility for for uh-huh. yourself, but also you had explained to me earlier in a conversation about how life before had been your reality was filled with the voices or experiences from other people and how war helped you change that to now it was your voice that needed to be the reflection that helped you take responsibility to change it. Could you share that with us for a few minutes? Yeah, because this is, this is really, uh, I hope I can do a decent job of explaining that when I, when I, you know, before I went to Vietnam, I was very physical. I was a gymnast in high school. I was a wrestler in high school. Most of my life was of physicalness. When I was wounded, so severely, my physicalness was rudely interrupted. And I was going to be disabled for the rest of my life, and I knew it. Um, But the things that became important to me 
were finding out that I was just as emotionally damaged as I had been physically damaged. And I, I, I found that I had a lot of love in me for my parents and my siblings. I, I was reconnecting with that part of myself when I was in the hospital in Japan. Um, I was in a lot of pain and um, I wanted to kill myself in Japan. You know, I told I, earlier, I, I told that story. And so the social worker came to my bed and, you know, he, he asked me to tell him about my parents. That's what got me back into my emotions as an emotional being, as well as a physical being. And when I, when I got, I finally got home um, after being in a body cast for eight months, I, I was realizing that my life had been changed so radically because like I said before, I had put most of my reality into being a physical being. And now I was seeing this wonderful emotional being in me and I wanted to know more about it. And that's why I went into art school is to have the freedom to express myself. But in order to truly and honestly express yourself, you have to know yourself. And I really, the only way I knew myself was what my parents trained me to, to be. You know, they emphasized certain things. And that was my culture of who I was. And then the military was another culture trying to tell me what I should be. And it almost got me killed. And so I was realizing emotionally that I'm not going to let anybody tell me who I am anymore. I am going to define who I am. I'm going to create my own culture of who I am. And when I got into art school, it just kind of forced me to question why I was doing this, you know, doing a lot of painting and drawing and then finding stone sculpture. It, it was an epiphany to start working with stone. It was just an overwhelming passion to carve stone. And I think, I think one of the reasons was because stone lasts so long. I think I admired stone so much. Um, it, it was a grounding material for us on this earth. Um, I don't, it, it just, stone became very important to me. And so I started carving and, and I would, I didn't really know what I was going to carve. I would just start carving in the stone and um, these images would come out of it. Uh, and these images were um, uh, symbolic of how I felt about being an animal, a human, and how I felt about humanity in general. Because after experiencing what humanity does in war, it makes you question who the hell we really are. And I realized that I am a very powerful animal. 
and and I, I I did about 200 carvings, different carvings, of um, the they they were beasts, and but they were benevolent but powerful beasts. Um, they were I did one nine feet tall. Many of them were like uh, three feet tall. Um, and I just loved looking at them and s figuring out what they were telling me, who I am. I am a powerful person. Um, and they're, oh, and all of these horned creatures, I call them, um, they had horns and uh, the head of a, an eagle, the torso of a human being, and then it rested on the serpent's tail. And, but for me, I mean, this was just the reality of being human. This is the way I saw being human, that we are predators and that we have uh, a serpent-like um, presence to us. We have a very strong human torso. Um, but we are beasts. And I had to admit that we are beasts and we are predatory beasts. However, because I had gotten in touch with the love aspect of myself, I, I, you know, I wasn't as much of a predator as other human beasts can be. And so I was defining myself. And I, and I realized early on that I was the only one that's responsible for telling me who I am and what I believe. I, I think this is a very powerful message for all of us to understand. Here you have been up against, we could say, suicide three times. You wanted to end your life because what you were experiencing physically and emotionally was at its limit, sometimes beyond its limit. And yet you have reflected back on these. Uh, you have understood that it was the voices of your parents, your society, the military, who were defining who you were. And that right. has failed. It's failed you completely. Uh, and we're not being critical of the military. We're not being critical of your parents. It's just this was a way of learning. When you understood that if you really wanted to recover, you had to be responsible to become the teacher in your life. And this was something that I think is such a powerful message for all of us. And not only that, but you went from the realization that you were not going to be a gymnast, you were not going to be a wrestler, that your physical, you were going to be, as you said, handicapped for the rest of your life, physically handicapped for the rest of your life. And yet right. you have maintained this connection with the power of love that helped you in your carving. And I'm, I'm just curious, when you were carving these things, had you not had the sense of love, would you have just been carving the beasts without the beautiful head of the eagle or the beautiful part? Nobody knows. But you did have the love. And yet, again, the power is not in going to mental health to have them rebuild this for you because you have already come from parents and family and society that have built you once and that failed. You have had the military build you into a culture that failed. Now you can go to a mental health professional and they will build you into another person. This is, the I think, the, the critical thinking, and I don't want to be redundant, but I am, that you have to take responsibility or cho chose 
to be responsible right. for creating this new reality, this new person. And it's not to say that the mental health profession doesn't have uh, a part in this, in guiding you to it, but they're not going to provide it. And more importantly, you had to realize you wanted to be the person responsible for creating it. Exactly. So I don't want to diminish the mental health role, except that I want to change it so that they are guiding you and helping you to be the person that, that uh, creates this new view of life. Meditation became a huge part of my life because meditation is what allowed my brain to calm and to, for me to tell myself what I needed to do. Um, I can't emphasize enough how important meditation was and, and still is. I meditate every night before I go to bed, before I go to sleep. Um, it calms my mind. It allows my mind to um, be me, to be me. And, and so after these 10 years, I, I carved stone. I came to the point, which was really fascinating, actually. I finally came to the point where I realized that life and everything around us, every moment is so incredible that I didn't need to carve stone anymore. But I needed to share this gift of, of passion for the power of, of art can be used as, as a wonderful, wonderful therapy. And I wanted to, to share my joy and my passion for art um, with kids. Um, you know, and, and because kids naturally take to art, drawing and painting. Well, they can't help it. It's it's really some of the first forms of writing is is um, you know drawing pictures and communicating in that way. Um, so I spent twenty years um, sharing my passion for art with with kids, um, and then I retired uh, from teaching in in two thousand five. I'm really impressed by this whole idea of when you were growing up. You were impressed by the physical body, the 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 gymnastics, the wrestling, the physical fitness, the military, the physical fitness, and yet you have come to find that in rebuilding your personality, you refer to it as being, you realize you were going to be permanently disabled physically, but there's a difference between being physically disabled and allowing that to really determine how you were going to be emotionally and mentally as you see the world. So the physical disability didn't stop you from finding this beauty, this purpose in life that you continue to have today at, the, at 73. I hate to give away your age, but we, uh, at 73, it's inspirational that even with the physical disability, there is, again, it's only a disability as far as the world that we knew determined it was going to be a disability. That, that defined that as a disability for you, but you undefined it by taking the mental and spiritual power and creating something that disregards the disability aspect. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't really today talked much about the spiritual side of myself, but it became, uh, you know, losing a lot of my physical ability. Um, it's sort of like when uh, a person goes blind, their hearing gets much more acute. 
and their and all their other senses get more acute to kind of make up for um, the blindness. Uh, it's a similar thing, I think, um, that I had to use what I had left, but realizing that that my emotional being had been so damaged by what I witnessed um, over in Vietnam um, and coming to grips with uh, that the, the military put me into this situation. I did my best to try to keep guys alive that, that had been wounded, but I wasn't over there very long. Um, so it's okay. well, Take a I'll be repeating myself here. Um, Some of this is worth repeating, but I think, again, the stronger message is even with the physical wounds, there's an aspiration to guide yourself to something higher and not be stopped by that. And you found this love, this purpose in life to help other people, to find children, even if it's just a matter of loving your family and being kind to them and showing them that you love them. It's their need to feel your love rather than it is for them to see the heartbreak of somebody who's become a victim of their own uh, Maybe uh, I just knew that the love of my parents and the love that I had for my siblings, it gave me a reason to live again. I still had another week to go in Japan before I was going to be sent um, to Bethesda Naval Hospital. And my parents, I knew they, they and my siblings were all going to come to visit. And so here I was with all this pain, couldn't have morphine for it. So all I had was can't I was looking so forward to seeing my family again and sharing our love. Um, so emotions became very, very important for me. Um, it gave me a reason to live and a purpose and meaning that I was given this gift of, of this powerful love and, um, yeah. Let me put the question to you differently, and I don't want to—I don't want to uh, bore our listener to death. But there's an important message here. Three different times you had seriously considered ending your life, or hoping it would be ended by someone else, up on the mountaintop in Japan, and again with the osteomyelitis in Rochester, Minnesota. Right. If you had succeeded with the suicide or the suicidal ideology at any one time on the mountaintop. Wouldn't we, the human race, have missed a lot in what you have left now? If you have had um, lived through that and gone on to Japan and successfully ended your life there, look at how much, wouldn't that have been a tragedy for you not to go on and find out what's there if you were aware that the pain is there, but so is the life? I put it as luck. I just, I, it's just amazing that I didn't bleed to death on the mountain. Yeah. It's amazing to me that my femoral artery wasn't broken yeah. until what was it? 12 days later, the other artery finally broke, but I was in the hospital. Right. Um, it's just luck. Well, it's not, it's not. And I'm making, I'm making good use of, of that. I was lucky and that I'm still alive and, and that all of these, Things like my emotions and my spiritual world, I've, I've been able to watch them grow. And and what a, what a beautiful gift that's all been. It is a good gift. But isn't that hopeful for somebody else who might be thinking about, I hope I find that pencil to jab in my heart, that you don't know how much hope there is and what beauty is there 
if you if you I'm not sure what the word would be if you believe that there is some some hope yeah. and some love and there is a beauty beyond what we know is there right now even in yeah. the most darkest time because you had referred to this as being in a black hole and anyone who studies a little bit of physics knows that a black hole is is a pretty dark place there's to no be. light yeah. There's no yeah. light <laughs> well, yeah and there's no escaping it uh, you know once and it wasn't there. until that um social worker yes. came to me in Japan and asked me to tell him about my parents. It, it, I was in the black hole yeah. until he asked me that question. And then my, my, my heart allowed me to feel my parents and feel my siblings. And that just opened up a whole other meaning for me. Yes, beyond the physical. And, and as far as other veterans who have been, you know, wounded horribly in, in war, um, I'm sure that there are a lot of, of them who can tell you at least as amazing stories as, as I'm telling. And then there are others that have committed suicide, and I am not going to judge anyone um, I, because I certainly understand when you're at certain places in your life that life just isn't worth living. But there you know? is hope. If you were but to there, look for it, there can be hope. Yes, yes but I, I I refuse to judge those who who um, who do commit suicide. I I would hope that we can create a, a a system for people that are really seriously considering suicide. Um, you know that they can go to. Um, you know because wow, if I had died way back then. Um, geez. Yeah. I mean, I, I really do love life. Well, not only have you loved life, but you've loved, loved life for, uh, the majority of your life in, in between yeah. you've had these episodes, but what's striking to me again is the time on the mountain was short in, in actual time where you had thought about taking your life. It was very short. The time in Japan where you had thought about taking your life was very short. You had gotten through that the time with osteomyelitis when you were suicidal or had suicidal ideology, as they call it, was very short compared to the, the 73 years you've been alive. So if you can get through that short period where the, where the urge is the greatest, I think right. that's where we need to find hope that this is typically not long lasting and that you are a very excellent example of not hoping that this love is going to come from somewhere else. It's going to be internally uh, generated. It's going to come from yourself. Right. And, and right. it is there all the time. It's present all the time if you yeah. choose to not look for love, but look to give the love. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Yeah, very fair. Yep. Mark Foreman, you are and always will be a hero to me. Uh, this is just an incredible story. I hope it has resonated with, the, with our audience. And I want to thank you for being a very big part of our educational response to the stigmas and to the mental health professional stigmatizing of us as opposed to your very brave and educational concept of take responsibility understand you have to get out of this yourself. It could be a tough road. It could be a dark road. It could lead decades, but you have to be the guide and the person who says, I don't want the voices that made me who I was before. I don't want the experiences that made me what I was before. It didn't work. It didn't create a a solid uh, reality for me. 
I need to do this myself. I can take all of my experiences and create this new life that is based on how I see the world honestly and not how other people want me to see the world. Thank you, Mark. And uh, just uh, thank you for all that you have done, all of the education. This is so beautiful to be given this opportunity to share my experience. And and I hope there are are going to be a lot of veterans uh, out there that have been in combat, understand the insanity of it. And um, after hearing the way I handle it, they might relate in some way. And uh, good luck to everybody. And since you are so good at using the word and the concept and the emotion of love, I love you, brother. And thanks for all that you're sharing with us. And and keep going. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Love you, too. Okay. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us and please tune in again.